Hello and welcome to All His Movies, the Shia LaBeouf podcast. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And this is a new experiment. This is something that we've been sort of talking about and planning for a while. We're dropping this on the world to our literally dozens of Cage Club fans. We're recording this ahead of time, so maybe by November when this comes out, we will have hundreds and thousands of fans. Who knows? Today, the day that the episode comes out is November 10th which marks a very special anniversary in the life of Shia LaBeouf, if you want to talk about that, Mike. It's also the day that inspired this podcast, actually. It's when he sat down and watched all of his movies in reverse order, (laughs) chronologically. He live-streamed it, too, so I don't know if you caught any of that. Uh, I checked in once or twice and saw a few still frames of his reactions during a couple of the movies, and we came together and decided that this would be a nice sort of special series of episodes to do. He's really sort of fascinating, and like this whole thing of him watching his movies is fascinating because, I mean, he's still, I guess, in a sense, acting, but he's, he's also kind of not acting. It seems like he's more, like, he's, he's just a really sort of fascinating, interesting, polarizing guy, which I feel is sort of in line with what we've been doing with Cage and Keanu, and sort of to a little bit of an extent, Zac Efron, even though Zac Efron isn't necessarily polarizing, but just there's like, there's, you know, multiple perceptions of him around on the internet. Yeah, I'd say there's some controversy surrounding him nowadays, and, you know, he's come out and said he'd like to be thought of more as a performance artist at times than just pigeonholed as an actor. Like, you know, he considers himself more than that, and, you know, I don't necessarily consider myself a huge fan of his, but over the years I've grown much more interested and curious about his body of work, somewhat due to, you know, what seem to be these outlandish publicity stunts, but they're not. But, you know, at the moment, you can catch him on Twitter tweeting his coordinates wherever he is in the country, just (laughs) hitchhiking across America. You know, this is the kind of things that he's also doing. So, yeah, I'm intrigued by him. I mean, he had that whole big thing a couple years ago about I'm not famous anymore, and he's sort of, going back, we'll see it as we go sort of in reverse chronological order. We're also, the reason we're doing that is because we're following his marathon. I think, as you said, you know, we're going backwards because he started at the beginning and worked his way backwards. Only disclaimer I want to have, the only one I want to put up front is that the first movie he watched is this movie called Man Down, which I believe premiered or, or, you know, they showed it at TIFF or some film festival, it seems like on the internet, nobody has written about it since that film festival. Like, it's not available anywhere, there's no dates coming out, there's no news stories about it. I don't know what happened to this movie, but this movie Man Down, we just can't get. So we're skipping that. The first movie we're doing, which we'll get to in a little bit, is Fury from 2014, 2015. I don't even know what year this came out. I think it's 14. He has a new movie coming out this year that's actually playing, or I guess that played at Fantastic Fest, because we're now in the future. This whole time frame that we're doing is going to confuse me every time we talk about it. (laughs) But he's in that new movie, American Honey, which is out now, possibly. Man Down just disappeared, so we're skipping that. And anything newer than what was in the marathon, we're not going to cover. Maybe down the road sometime, we'll watch his newer movies. But we're trying to do as close to his marathon as we can get, I think. That was the whole idea, was to just stick with his plan and do what he did. And it's unfortunate about Man Down, because we like to be the completists and see everything <laughs> we can and, and match him as close as possible. But, you know, we'll do our best. And if it gets released, we'll cover that as well at some point, too. It is kind of strange. It almost seems like the only time that movie was screened was when he did his little marathon, you know? I think that might have been, like, it's the theatrical debut in America, no one really got to see it, but that's um, 
a mystery movie for the time being. We so badly wanted to do Man Down that we had this idea like several months ago and we waited until sort of there was a little bit more of a lull in terms of recording time. Yeah. <laughs> we waited and we could have started this so long ago because so we're like, all right, the first movie is the only movie we can't find. Let's see if we can wait it out. Maybe it'll go to theaters. Maybe it'll go to on demand. Maybe we can find it through some nefarious way online. And it's literally like gone from the public consciousness. I don't know what happened to this movie, but just know that we tried. Yeah, it'll be interesting as we work our way back to see if any other films or performances that he's been in were sort of shelved or put to a side for a few years and released later. Maybe something like that's going on with Man Down. It can't find distribution. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if, you know, this has ever happened to one of his films before. You do hear sometimes about that movies getting shelved for quite some time. I know that it happens. It's just such a weird coincidence that, like, the movie, that this one that's just going to kick everything off, you know. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So the first movie that we're doing for all his movies is Fury, which came out in 2014. And what's weird about the way that we're doing this and the way, the, the way that it's sort of going from new to old is that Fury might be the best movie he's ever done and my favorite Shia LaBeouf movie. So it's sort of, it's sort of weird and kind of depressing a little bit to know that it's all maybe downhill from here. But it's also a great, great, great way to start this off. And it also comes at an interesting time because the writer and director of this movie, David Ayer, just put out in our time, three months or two months in the past for you, the listener, uh, just put out Suicide Squad, which is a very different movie in just about every way in terms of content, in terms of style, in terms of quality. Fury is a fantastic movie. Shia LaBeouf is great in it. It's just a, a killer way to kick things off. No pun intended on the killer way. There's really a lot to unpack right here in the first movie with this first episode. Uh, much like you, I simply love this movie. Uh, this is only my second time seeing it, but having only seen it once, a, a lot of the imagery had, was just seared into my mind. You know, watching it the second time, I was like, oh, I remember all of this very vividly. <laughs> yeah. um, it's super gritty, realistic. I would consider this like a like a 10 out of a 10 film, so we kind of screwed ourselves a little bit, maybe, come, <laughs> you know, starting at the top, but who, who knows? You know, we'll, we'll see what kind of surprises we run into throughout his past. He is fantastic in this. We'll get more into that in a few minutes, and I love David Ayers. Like, I, I really like all of his previous films up to this. Um, I sort of went back after seeing this and watched most of his work. You know, I I wasn't really a big fan of Suicide Squad, but interestingly enough, I kind of understand why he may have taken that job or why they considered him, because there is maybe one connection between this movie and that, and it's we're going to get a bunch of people who maybe might not be the best type of people in the world. Maybe some Mm -hmm. of them are criminals, and they're putting their lives on the line to do something heroic that most people will never, ever hear about, so... There's just that kind of strange little thread that I did notice watching it this time that, you know, just made me smirk. I think the only other movie that I know of his that I've watched for sure is End of Watch. I know that we're going to get to a Keanu movie that he Mm -hmm. did next year sometime, which is Street Kings. But End of Watch is sort of in a similar-ish vein and sort of... You know, there aren't really clear lines between good and evil, and they're sort of like, everything's kind of blurred, and people are just, honestly, like in all three of those movies, like people are just trying to get by, right? Like they're mm-hmm. just, everybody's just trying, like in this movie, they're literally just trying to survive, and you know, nobody wants to be there, but they all know that they sort of, in a way, have to be there, and so they're all, we could talk about this movie forever and ever, 
and I kind of want to, but at the same time, I also sort of want to spend most of our time just talking about Shia within that context, sort of see how the rest of the movie works around him, you know? Yeah, certainly. You know, it's good that we have him as uh, this anchor point that we could always bring ourselves back on track towards, you know, if we ever get too far off, because um, with some of these movies, and especially this, we might go off a little bit talking about other things, such as you know, the director here, and he's also the writer, too, you know, and I think the movie he might most be famous for is Training Day, and he also is also one of the credited writers of Fast and Furious, so this whole theme is sort of in his wheelhouse as he takes sort of these maybe, you know, unconventional character, well, he takes these characters that are of the criminal element, and he kind of tries to show this other side that maybe you're prejudiced, you know, keeps you from seeing sometimes. It's like, just because they look mean and tough and are, doesn't mean that they can't come through at the end of the day and actually do something noble. I might be wrong, and I might just be missing things, but I think that the perspective that this movie takes, in a lot of ways, both in terms of, like, when it's set and the type of story it tells, and the way that it just gets to know these guys, it's really unlike a lot of other war movies that I've seen. I mean, we're basically at the very, very end of World War II. Mm-hmm. That it's April 1945, they're just sort of, it's like the last charge through Germany. There's like four tanks left, or at least in this area, right? They, there's like, basically everything's gone. Like, they're just sort of like, not necessarily doing cleanup duty, but it's like one last pass through. It's like grittier and dirtier. There, there have been movies in World War II that show just how nasty it was, you know, for instance, like Saving Private Ryan. But this, it just, there's something different about this movie, and it might just be the way that we come to know these guys. I don't know, it just, this feels like a, a thing that, you know, there have been how many, probably hundreds of movies about World War II, including some that we did in Cage Club, right? Yeah, we, and Wind Talkers. Captain Crowley's Mandolin, was that World War II? Yeah, the Nazis. There's been so many movies about World War II, and this still feels fresh and unique and, like, new. Yeah, what got me immediately was when this movie takes place. You know, it's almost a year after they storm the beach in Normandy, and there's a general sense that Normandy was sort of like the end of World War II in a lot of ways. I just, you know, I just feel like that's such an important red-letter day in history. Most people just kind of feel like, oh, that's when all the fighting might have ended, and I might have been in that group of people because I did not realize a year later they're still pushing through Berlin, sweeping up Nazis and clearing out towns and trying to gain strongholds. Yeah, like you said, this this is sort of the the last thrust of the war and you know no one's given up on either side and everyone is completely exhausted and you just get this extremely narrow micro view of this tank crew and pretty much that's it you really get to know them in the final not just the final days of the war but the final days of their lives even everyone's not just tired but like everybody just seems desperate you know what i mean like they're all they just don't want to be there but they know they have a job to do and what's I don't want to keep comparing it to Suicide Squad even though it it makes sense in both the director and the timely manner but like the way that they introduce this crew you know it's sort of the same thing like you have like this group of people you don't know right they the way that they sort of effortlessly introduce these guys just works like you don't need to know like oh like it's not like they have backstories like the flashbacks like who Brad Pitt was for the last five years and who Shia LaBeouf was for the last five years like just the way that they're written it's just like you get these people you know what I mean like it just everything about it just seems like it just works the filmmaking is so tight and economic and you he shows you so much and those just like a lot of the shots feel like paintings and and 
you can just derive so much information just from seeing instead of hearing. And I get that a lot with the tank crew, just the look in their eyes or the expressions on their face. And when we're first introduced to them, their assistant driver has just had his head blown off, you know, so they're, you know, in shock. They just finished a battle and they're in mourning and we meet them for the first time and they're jump-starting their tank to get back to base. Ayers does effortlessly, has these guys distinct, like these guys just feel distinct, unique, you know, they're, they're all individuals, but throughout the movie you also get a sense that they're a very tight-knit team and family as well. But like, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised and, you know, I don't want to keep bringing up comparisons to Suicide Squad, but this, you know, you don't need flashy graphics and baseball card stats and theme songs to flash up on the screen to give you an idea of who these characters are like we get it immediately and you know i credit Ayers and these actors tremendously from the start what i also really appreciate it and i think it, it you mentioned it at one point but it's the tank feels both the tank named fury the, the titular tank <laughs> uh it feels both literally and figuratively lived in and we find out, you know, about halfway through the movie or two-thirds of the way through the movie that, like, these guys, like, this has been a team, we don't really know how long, but, like, they've been together yeah. for years. The only, like, real detail they go into is, like, that doesn't happen. Like, that, like this is not something that happens, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's something that, like, this is something special. And even though we don't really get their backstories, like you said, you know, on baseball cards with theme music or theme songs, we know that, like, they're all, they, 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 this is their home. And, like, even, you know, at the very end, spoiler alert, when, like, Brad Pitt, when they, when they decide to not run, they're going to sort of have their, you know, Custer's last stand in Fury. He's like, I'm not leaving my home. Like, this is where I belong. Like, I'm not going to run away. And they're all like, we're with you. And you can, you can just tell how special this place is. This, it's them, but it also, it's, 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 it's like, symbolic of so much. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, the tank is just such a great set piece, if you will. You know, like, it's... Inside that tank, at first, it almost feels like a jail cell, but, (laughs) you know, like, it's so cramped and metal and cold, but then you, you know, throughout the course of the movie, you do get this sense of it's almost more of, like, like a man cave or something, you know what I'm saying? This place where, like you say, like, it's lived in, it's theirs, they shine through the inside of that tank in a lot of ways, I feel. Um, What's funny is, you know, the the Blu-ray came with about 50 minutes of extended sequences and deleted scenes, and I went through all that this morning and watched it, and there is a lot of backstory that they cut, and I think it's cut for the better, you know? I don't really want to know what Brad Pitt did before the war. I find the mystique a lot more intriguing in making up my own decisions, And, and they do reveal how long they've been together as a unit, but you can kind of get the sense... You know, from Brad Pitt says at one point, you know, his character War Daddy, who who leads the tank crew, mm-hmm. they were f- killing Germans in what West Africa, then in France, then in Belgium, now in Germany. So you know they've been around together for years, and like you said, right. like no one is expecting to live through the next battle either. So it's. Like, either divinity or pure luck that these guys are still alive. I think what I want to talk about now, and I think that's a good segue from what you just said, is that each of these guys plays a different role. And, I mean, sort of the roles kind of bleed over a little bit from one to the other. And I think that's sort of... It feels natural. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, oh, John Bernthal is the hothead. But then you're like, oh, well, no, because Michael Pena is the hothead. But, like, they all sort of have emotions. But they all sort of have, like, a different role in the team. And so... 
Brad Pitt is the leader. He's War Daddy. He's, you know, they call him Top. He's the guy who sits on the top of the tank, looks out. The guy that we're all here for, Shia, plays Boyd Bible Swan. And he's like the, I think he's like the heavy artillery gunner. Like he, he seems to aim and shoot, right? And he's sort of the religious undertones. I mean, he's mm. probably reflective of like what a, a lot of people went through at the time, right? You know, in terms yeah. of like finding God on the battlefield. Yeah, there's actually a lot of religious undertones throughout this entire film that some more overt than others, but I suppose Shia's character is the most overt out there. I, I thought he was a chaplain at one point. Uh, I thought he was the medic. And then he gets behind the giant cannon and starts, you know, ripping out those... <laughs> massive shells and I'm like wow it's true like you, everybody's kind of surprises you all these characters surprise you like wh- right when I thought Shia was going to be the nice quiet guy you realize like no he's arming the heaviest gun there is out there and stuff. you know it's all kind of relative right like he's the religious one but he still curses and kills Germans and drinks and you know just because he's religious doesn't mean like he's he's, he's righteous or holy you know what I mean like he's he just he, he knows what he knows and he cares about what he cares about and what's kind of interesting I don't know if you read this online or I don't know if it was on a uh, special feature but while they were filming this movie it was reported that Shia, the actor, became a Christian. Hmm. I found God during Fury. I became a Christian man in a very real way. Hmm. I could have just said the prayers that were on the page, but it's a full-blown exchange of heart, a surrender of control. He said that talking with Brad Pitt, who grew up in a conservative Christian house and rejected Christianity, and with David Ayer, the director, who is apparently openly a Christian director, according to this one thing on IMDb, helped crystallize his thinking. So not only did he play this Christian character, but he really, I don't want to say, like, bought into it, because that sounds sort of negative, but, like, this was, like, a transformative experience for him. And I I could buy that, because I believe every damn word that his character says. You know, there's just something about this movie and these guys, this crew, like, everything, they don't feel like they're acting. You know, I almost can't recognize Shia LaBeouf. I can't recognize Michael Pena. Certainly don't recognize, you know, John Bernthal. You know, he almost looks like a gorilla in this movie or something, like King Kong (laughs) or something. It's just mental how real it all feels. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if it wasn't exactly like this, like, especially in comparison to other World War II films, I mean, even Saving Private Ryan, at the time, that felt this type of gritty. But then you see Fury, and you're like, Private Ryan is like, when you watch an old western and you see how clean everything looks in the dusty town you know it just this really gives the sense of honesty to me when i'm watching this and i'm like yeah it's just all out there what's really kind of interesting and fascinating sort of in like a weird way a twisted way is that you you see just how horrible world war ii is and i think a lot of films have captured just how terrible that is but, like, in a weird way, like, you like you want to be in this tank. You know what I mean? Like, they might be closer friends. I know that there's, like, a fictional group. I'm sure it's based on something real. But, like, they're closer to each other than, like, many people be to anybody in their life. You know what I mean? Because they, like, they basically lived in this tank, sitting next to each other, sitting on top of each other for three to four years. I mean, like, this is brotherhood. This is a family. Like, this is great how close they are. Like, it's, it's emotional. It's, it's powerful. Yeah, I really want the camaraderie they experience without the experience it took to gain all of that bond and you know like i don't want to go to war in a tank but i do want this type of you know relationship with friends you know and and what i love most about it is you know deep down they will and do die for each other they're also mean to each other and hate each other and love each you know like they just run the emotional gambit because 
from the start, they're all just at their wit's end. You know, they emotionally, they can't compose themselves the way that a normal person would because they're just shocked by all the horrors of war and stuff. So you get it on top of all of this. They may not have wanted to come together, but they did, and they're glad they did, and they do consider each other brothers and family by the end of this it's yeah you see and i see a lot in movies you know they try to form a team and come together and a lot of times it just feels forced and this time it's just it doesn't feel forced maybe it's just the lack of explanation you're just dropped into this hellhole and (laughs) follow these people almost in a documentary like style and so you just get close to them and, and it rubs off and I really by the end of this you know you miss I miss them I want I want to see a lot more of these characters that's why I watch the extended scenes and everything I mean my favorite scene in the movie is exactly what you're talking about in terms of the documentary feel and just basically taking a step back is that they are in the tank and they're talking about talking about loving Jesus and you know they're talking about like all sorts of weird stuff you know basically just killing time while they're driving to a town and then they're talking they ask Shia do you think that Jesus loves Hitler, and then like they just make each other laugh, right? They all just like crack up. They're just you know shooting the shit, mm-hmm. whatever. And then the camera just like hovers there, and like there's just a couple seconds of them driving, and then they just start laughing again. And like there's just something like beautiful about that. That like we're just it we're like it's like we're not there. You know what I mean? Like we're like a fly on the wall. Like we're just seeing them as terrible as everything around them is. They just love hanging out with each other, and they you know the horrors of the world around them sure like that's all awful but like there's no one they'd rather be with and they just enjoy each other's company and just it's just wonderful technically the way the film is shot adds a lot to that because like you say the camera lingers a lot or shots are long takes and there's not a lot of run and gun handheld jason bourne type documentary style filmmaking it's much more in that fly on the wall thing you know it's not in the style of the camera work it's just more in the tone in a way I don't know it's kind of hard to explain but I feel like because the director is has the patience that it takes to really tell the story he wants to tell the story he wants to tell isn't so much about the action it's about their faces I feel you know that's where I'm kind of coming, right? He just wants you to learn every line of Brad Pitt's face or, you know, the teeth in Bernthal's mouth. You know, they're just horrible. And, you know, he wants you to just every piece of grit and grime is the way he tells the story. And I just have to commend him because, you know, a lot of films will just think that that's not entertaining, you know, like the camera needs to be moving and active for it to be a action movie. But we get some action sequences in here that are quick and great and you don't need to really jump around and be crazy to get exciting tense cinema yeah i don't want to say that there's not a lot of action because there is a lot of fighting there is a lot of war there's a lot of you know brutal gritty stuff i mean even from like like the first scene of the movie brad pitt like jumps off a tank mm-hmm. and tackles a guy off a horse and like slits his throat right like like from the like from the jump you're like oh this is that kind of movie like like i'm gonna have to grip on like the, the armrest of my chair like i'm just gonna be you know like this is like terrifying. The fact that there's not, like, it's not wall-to-wall action makes the action that's on screen that much more palpable. And I also don't think, like, it wouldn't be a comfortable experience for a two-hour movie with, like, an hour 45 of this kind of action. Like, it'd be, you'd be just too much. Yeah, it would be Wind Talkers, right? Like, Wind Talkers is much (laughs) more that, where it's all about the glorification of the battles and John Woo showing, like, you know, the, not violence porn, but just showing the 
bullet ballet of war, you know, the beauty in the macabre and, you know, horror of it and everything, but but not this movie. <laughs> this movie takes a different direction like you mentioned with that opening shot you know a lot of the action is sort of like that where it's like that is like a nice long opening shot too where we see the rider on the pale horse come down through just all the dead bodies and brad pitt jump off of him that shot is able to create suspense that has that nice burst of action and it also sets up sort of a visual language or thematically you know brad pitt I don't know if I'm reading too far into it, but he jumped a man who was riding a pale horse, and Death rides a pale horse, and, you know, he's buying his time and trying to live another day, and and I also thought it was interesting that the horse is the first thing we see, and it's sort of become this obsolete technology in exchange for the tank, which we're going to spend the rest of the movie in. More like that. Yeah, so, like, just with this opening shot, he lets you know there's going to be realism and symbolism, and it blends really well. And I think that those two things blend really well and probably what's the most I don't know, I don't want to say memorable, but it might be memorable, like sort of the most daring scene and I wish that Shia was in it because we'd be able to like really dive into it, but like he doesn't really show up until the end, but that scene in the middle of the movie where Brad Pitt and the kid that they eventually dub Machine, this sort of, you know, fresh-faced kid Norman. who joins their team, they go to this, basically like a farmhouse, like just sort of like an, it's not a farmhouse, it's like it's an, it feels like a farmhouse, like it's an apartment just like in a town square. Yeah, they, they've sort of taken this small German town and they go room to room looking for officers and that's when he finds Brad Pitt finds a lady hiding a girl. Maybe it's just the fact that Brad Pitt's in both movies, but this reminds me more so of anything else or more so than anything else in this movie. It reminds me of Inglorious Bastards. It's either like that opening scene or that scene down in the basement where it ultimately leads to that shootout. It's this war movie that like the scene like they just let the scene breathe. It almost feels like it's a different kind of movie. Like there's like this could very well be a movie where you know, soldiers come into town, sort of like Captain Corelli's Mandolin, where it's just mm-hmm. like the war is going on around you, but we're not going to focus on it. Like here, it's just, you know, there's there's women who live here through sort of no decision on their own part are kind of forced to deal with these like outsiders, right? This scene has got to be 15 or 20 minutes long, if not longer. It feels like a totally different movie, but it also like makes perfect sense in here. And I think just the amount of time that they spend on this, and then even when they, they sort of double down on things, when John Bernthal and Michael Pena and Shia LaBeouf show up later, this scene is, like, fascinating. Yeah, this scene does kind of feel like it may come out of nowhere, but it also feels completely natural because at this point, everything feels so surreal where they're celebrating in that town square. You know, I almost feel like at this point, we can diverge to anywhere and I'll go with it. And I really do like this sequence a lot. I almost wondered, watching this movie, you know, I kind of expected Shia to play the Norman role. You know what I'm saying? Like, I almost felt like that is where I would see him cast, sort of as this, like, fresh face, you know, cipher for the audience. You know, I, when I think of Shia LaBeouf, I don't think of him as, like, a, being able to necessarily pull off, like, this worn, torn, grief-stricken soldier, but he does that really well. I was almost wondering, watching it this time, like, what if Shia was playing the Norman role and having the eggs with Brad Pitt and the ladies and everything like that? One other thing I wondered about this role, I mean, there's so much to sort of read into this, but a couple scenes prior, 
Brad Pitt sort of drags Norman out of the tank and forces him to shoot a Nazi officer against his will. And I almost wondered if this was him sort of trying to make up for that in a way. Maybe he felt that he was being a little too hard on old Norman for that. And then when the rest of the tank crew come in to join them, you just get the sense like they've never been more offended in their entire life. Right? Like, Shia basically sits down and just starts to cry, you know? <laughs> like, And he's almost crying for most of the movie, it seems like he's on the verge of tears. But at that moment, when he came in, it almost seems like worse than him seeing someone kill his dog, you know? Like, seeing this person he considered a brother, like, betray him in that moment. It was just very tense and very interesting because almost immediately they have to snap out of it and go on a mission. And every everything has to just revert back to, well, we have to mark it up to war is hell and, you know, we can't really focus on the past and what just happened in this room. We have to go back into our tank and we have to fight. I didn't necessarily see it that way. I'm not saying you're wrong because I don't really have like an alternative way to say it, but like earlier in the movie, they're sort of talking and they're sort of joking about how there's this girl sort of nearby somewhere who will have sex with you for like a bar of chocolate mm-hmm. or like you don't even need to give her like a pack of cigarettes. Like you can give her like four cigarettes. And like they're all sort of joking and I think Norman, that's that's before he sort of like really gels with the team. He's just like, like guys, that's not cool. Like let's not talk about that or whatever. We get here and I don't know if they were, I don't know if he brought Norman because he felt bad or just sort of coincidence. But then like you see him offer the eggs and the cigarettes and whatever else. And, like, it just, it's like, oh, like, I'm just, like, every girl, apparently, in Europe is just sort of, like, it's like all of Europe is a brothel, kind of. You know what I mean? It's, it's this weird implication, and I guess, I, that, I mean, that must have been what it was like. It's, it's weird. I see it as, for Brad Pitt, that I think no matter who he was with, although I think it does make the most sense for Norman and what you said in terms of kind of as an apology, right? That he brought him with her, that he was there, and he's like, I'm going to take care of this. Instead of, like, you know, me feeling good, I'm going to, like, sort of make it up to this kid. But I think that, like, the, the bigger thing that I take away from this scene is that, like, this is kind of an escape from war for Brad Pitt, that he sort of has, like, like just even just one meal, like, even just 20 minutes, just, like, give me something normal. And then when the rest of his team shows up, you know, these guys that he loves... It like it, it, everything comes rushing back, and they're just loud. And you know, Michael Pena is telling a story about having to kill horses, and Shia is just sitting there crying. I'm just I wrote down in my notes like, I bet Brad Pitt's character is thinking like, can't we go one meal without like talking <laughs> killing horses? Just like like let's just pretend like let's just have like one nice thing. I know that we're in Europe. I know that we just killed a bunch of guys. People, everybody around us is trying to kill us. But, like, we can still have, like, a nice breakfast, can't we? The reality is, like, no, we can't, because, like, you're sort of deluding yourself. And if you want to have that real, like, the real, real whatever, you know what I mean? You you, you, you sort of can't escape like that. There's no room to be civilized anymore, right? Like, he just wants to sit down, read the paper, have his eggs and his coffee, right? And he's sort of manufactured this fake family for himself within the confines of the war here. I just love it when the crew comes in because he even says something to the effect of like we you know, I'm not gonna let you ruin my meal or you know, and just ignores them and they're still there, they're still there and they can't do anything to like to phase him, but eventually he does spit at one of them, right? Like it just gets to this boiling point and then it's almost like the war is like uh sorry guys like there's there's no time for any of this because we need you back out like on the battlefield (laughs) it's like the strangest dysfunctional family sort of dinner meal scene in cinema history (laughs) it's a good thing that like sort of the i mean i don't it's gonna sound weird to say but like it's a good thing that war keeps going on that they have to get out of there and i know just sort of for you know 
cinematic irony or just, you know, emotional devastation, but, like, as soon as they leave, the building gets bombed, and the girl that Norman just had sex with is dead. And John Bernthal's like, what are you going to do? You're going to, like, you're going to bring her back from the dead? You're going to rise her up? Like, just get back in the tank. Like, we got to move on. Like, we can't stay here. Mm. It's, it's like this slap in the face that, like, you, you think you have normal until normal's just stripped away from you. It's just like, war is like, no, like, you don't have anything. Yeah, and the movie is able to really earn a moment that might kind of come across a little more false in another movie, you know? Like, I feel like because he set up this certain language of his film, like, we're going to see real stuff, but coincidences are going to happen for the sake of the story and for symbolic reasons. Like, I feel like this is much more of, like, a symbolic gesture of her dying and immediately after them having sex and sipping Miss Bigel's tea or whatever we're going to call it for Shia. <laughs> Trading for eggs. Trading for eggs. It might seem kind of just, you know, too coincidental in any other war movie, but I feel like he's trying to make, you know, certain points throughout this with, with cinema, and I think it works really well here where it might not have in a different movie. And I think because it works so well, it also at the same time solidifies the team that Norman now realizes that, like, oh, nothing good can stay, right? Yeah. Like, every, like nothing good can last. And so I think Shia even says at this point, he's like, you know, did you hear that, like, God didn't call us today? You hear me, boys? Or Brad Pitt says that, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like we could have died there, but, like, we didn't. Like, this is not our time to die. And that's sort of, like, when they all bond together. It's the beginning of their bonding, because it feels like, and I mean... It, it makes sense in terms of Norman being part of the audience or, like, the audience's way into this team, but, like, it feels like this this group was a group, and then all of a sudden there's just an outsider in there that has to fit in. And, like, it's until he realizes that things don't go the way that he wants them to that he's not really a part of the team. And then it's sort of this, like, devastating moment that really solidifies things, and he's just like oh, this is just life now, that girl died, but these guys aren't going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, up until this point, he will barely even pull the trigger in the tank, you know? Like, they keep yelling at him, and he keeps screwing up, because he kind of just, he can't bring himself to fight in a lot of ways, you know? He doesn't really have anything to fight for. He doesn't have any experience, so they aren't giving him any respect. And, uh, you know, this, this moment for him is, I feel like, his war experience, you know? Like, this is where he gets his stare or finally sees a glimpse into what you know life is really like after this you know they get into that amazing fight with the german tank where like the one tank takes out like three american tanks and and definitely like during that battle and from then on they respect him they they have his back and you know he's kind of like their new pet in a way like he's like he starts off almost as like their new dog and then he graduates the brother by the end of the movie i don't know they have like weird affection for him they're really hard on him and then they suddenly sort of flip because he has now joined them in like emotionally you know with the law he's seen the horrors of war that's it yeah i really think like the, the more that we talk about it the more that we talk about the norman character it really makes me wish that what you said earlier was true that Shia was playing this character, because, like, there's just so much... Like, he's the most... In ways, like, he's the most... He's, like, the most interesting and the most boring character. You know what I mean? Because he is sort of, like, a nothing. Like, he is... He's just sort of there as our stand-in. We're seeing everything through his eyes. I don't know. It just... He's fascinating. And, I mean, everybody else there is just sort of... You know, they all have their quirks. Like, Shia loves the Bible, and, you know, John Bernthal's just sort of, like, a 
kind of just like a psychopath kind of, right? Yeah. And Brad Pitt just sort of keeps everybody together, but like it's this guy that figures out his place in the world, and that's the most interesting thing of all. Yeah, they all kind of rub off on him in a certain way, which I kind of thought by the end of this, he's this amalgam of everybody in the tank who's died. He will go on with their personality traits somehow, like in little bits and pieces. I still think Bible is a really strong character. That's the thing about these characters is like they really, there's really not a lot of stuff about that. Like, there's not a lot of backstory. They don't all talk a lot or, like, for very long stretches of time. Usually Shia's just talking about the Lord. I just really like this movie. Maybe that's it. Maybe we just, you know, I can't stop praising things about it. I'm trying to find (laughs) things I don't like about it. You know, like I said, like, it would have been cool if Shia did play Norman, but I still very much enjoy what he is doing here. That mustache is crazy. Like, who knew he could grow that? The mustache is crazy. (laughs) I mean, we also need to... I think we need to point out the fact that, like, Shia pulled his own teeth out or got his teeth extracted for this role. He did a uh, Nick Cage there. The cut on his face is a cut that he gave himself that every time it started to, like, heal over, he would reopen it to, to fit in with the character. I mean, he went, like, all out for this this role, this movie. You know what I mean? Like, this is... Like, he had... I mean, maybe almost a little bit too much. Like, it's a little <laughs> bit kind of too crazy. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also really kind of admirable. Even though he is not the star, even though he's not this guy that we've been spending most of this podcast talking about, he does have his... Like, his sort of his shining moment comes about half an hour left in the movie... And he talks about this Bible verse they thinks of a lot, right? And he's just, I'm here because I, I, like, this is my calling. Like, you know, I'm here because this is what I'm supposed to do. There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And it sort of feels like, even though they're not all thinking about in the religious way, in the the God way, in like the chosen way, they all sort of feel like that, right? Like this this is what they have to do, like this is what they're all meant to be there for. Yeah, I love the uh, I love when he starts cracking up after he realizes Brad Pitt, you know, basically memorized the Bible. Also, <laughs> then, what's really great about Shia in this and everybody else is, you know, for an ensemble like this crew, like these guys, and for a story like this where there isn't necessarily a whole lot of backstory and you have to, you know, figure out these guys on your own, he has the star power to pull this off. Right? Like, he's got the presence. He, You know what I'm saying? Like, he's got whatever you need, whatever it takes. He's got what Brad Pitt had. You know what I'm saying? Like, he is a movie star. I was almost worried watching this going, is he an imposter? Is he a tourist? This movie, right off the bat, lets me know, like, he has the chops to be a real serious actor. So I'm going to be looking to see what's been going on before this movie, if, <laughs> if he's had any other shining moments quite like this. I mean, this movie is really just filled with guys who can just, like, really effing act. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... <laughs> 
John Bernthal, like, people know him now, I guess, as the, as the Punisher from the Daredevil series. I mean, he's been, and I guess, as Shane also in The Walking Dead, even though that was kind of... I can't tell if Shane was, like, a terrible character <laughs> or a great character. Yeah. That whole show was all wonky. Everything he's been in in the last, like, five or ten years, like, ever, like you know... Wolf of Wall Street. In Wolf of Wall yeah. Street and everything, exactly. It's just, like, this dude can act, and, like, Michael Pena can act, mm. and, like, the kid who plays Norman, who I don't know his name... Pena was um, a huge surprise for me in this movie because I saw this before we watched World Trade Center for Cage Club, so I okay. had only really known him as sort of the more comedic type of actor, like Eastbound and Down or the right. Seth Rogen mall cop movie, I always forget the name of it. Observe and Report. Observe and Report. Watching this was sort of my first experience of serious Pena, and yeah. <laughs> I love this guy. Like, I am so just fascinated by, you know, all of his different levels. Great. I mean, he's also great in, an, in the other uh, David Ayer movie that I talked about earlier, End of Watch, yes. with Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, it's just like this guy, like, I don't know, I think it's the writing, but it's also just like, it's like the right casting. Like, you know, they, these guys can all just nail these parts. And like, there's a lot, obviously, for the actors to really dig into. They nail it. Like, what's on the page? Like, it's it's probably great, but like, they just elevate it. Yeah, and I think Ayers just knows exactly what he wants. You know, this feels like a film that is like, almost like an auteur film, where it's like a guy was, le- like, almost something Christopher Nolan would do, you know, where, like, you, the studio has this director who's had a lot of, you know, moderate successful films and made made them a lot of money, so they let him go off and make his passion project, and it almost feels like that, and it's one of those rare instances where that project is fucking great, you know, instead of just, like, <laughs> this complete bomb or, you know, no one can understand it except for the director. It's like, I don't know, it just feels like nobody bothered him while he made this movie and he got to do exactly what he wanted and that's pretty rare. As the movie wraps up and as the podcast wraps up, you, like, the the tank breaks down and they're just sort of, like, you know, they kind of have their guys, while they're trying to figure out what to do next, they sort of have guys kind of spying the the landscape to see what's happening. What they say is, like, two or three hundred Germans coming toward them. Yeah. It's it's this kind of movie, and I think maybe just being sort of trained by Hollywood, you kind of expect them to live, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like, oh, like, these guys that we spend all movie with, like, they can't die. You're like, oh, but like this is also, like, a really gritty, realistic movie. Maybe they could. And then the way that it's shot, the way that it's sequenced, you know, they basically take out probably close to 100 guys mm-hmm. before any of them go. And you're like, holy shit, like, they might, they might actually do this. <laughs> the math catches up to them, right? Yeah. Like, just go down one by one. Like, one of them... I think it's John Bernthal gets hit. They have what? What do they call it? The Panzerfaust, which is like a rocket through the tank that just goes through his stomach. Michael Pena, like a grenade jams on him, or a gun jams on him, and he gets shot. And then the grenade like drops in the tank, and he has to cover it up. And just like you know, within a matter of minutes, like these guys are just dropping and dropping and dropping. And then we're down to three, and it's it's Shia and it's Brad Pitt, and it's. Norman, the most shocking death of all, and I don't think it's just because we were watching this movie for him, but, like, Shia, just, like, in a time you don't see it coming, just gets, like, his head blown off, basically, like, a bullet through the head, and just, like, oh, nobody's immune, like, everybody's gonna go. Yeah, that was the most abrupt death, because he comes up, like, (laughs) mid-sentence, telling... Brad Pitt something, and, like, before he could even finish getting the sentence out, like, he's shot in the face. You know, you finally see this expression on Brad Pitt's face you've almost been waiting for the whole movie of actual shock and surprise that something happened, you know, because he's almost just stoic, just completely, just nothing can phase him because he knows war is just terrible, but he's seeing his men get picked off at this point one by one. I just simply love 
the whole concept of this last stand of theirs. Their mission is to go to this crossroads. And, you know, the crossroads is just, it's very symbolic, you know, the devil's crossroads, where the devil stays with his fiddle and you can duel him for your soul and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's just religious connotation going on here and that they are broken down right in the center of this crossroads. It's kind of like they're on a crucifix at the end of the movie, that the tank has been crucified almost, in a way, um, with all these just dead Nazis around it. It's just spectacularly shot, very well staged, and extremely tense and gruesome. Like, it escalates and escalates and escalates and escalates, and you're just like, when will this ever end? And it ends only when... Brad Pitt, the walls are literally closing in on them, and, you know, Norman's like, can we get out of here? And I think, like, by this point, Brad Pitt's been shot. Like, he got shot earlier, and then it's like, as he's shooting, like, a sniper's, you know, attacking him, like, sniper hits him. Like, kind of, honestly, like, a terrible sniper. Like, he's not, <laughs> I don't know, unless he's trying not to kill Brad Pitt, right. like, he, he hits him, in, like, in both shoulders, like, three or four times. But Brad Pitt's sort of, like, slumped into the, the tank, and Norman's like, is there a way that I can get you out of here? And he's like, there's a hatch below, and Norman escapes sort of just as the Germans open up the tank and drop a grenade in and kill Brad Pitt, the only death that we see off-screen, or the only one that we don't see, right? Yeah. And then Norman's just hiding there, we're all, like, terrified, because he's sort he's us, you know, like, we've been talking about all movie, that he is the audience, and we're like, well, he can't die, because, like, we can't die, <laughs> yeah. and, like, we need, sort of need, like, a survivor to tell the story, right? Yeah. They have, like, a, a young, like, a baby-faced SS officer come up and see him with a flashlight, and you're like, oh, no, like, this is it. Yeah, it's crazy when the legendary you know, War Daddy is dead. There's no way I thought Norman was going to survive the first time I watched this because Brad Pitt is basically like Superman, like the Ubermensch, like, you know, Hitler's ideal was fighting for us against Hitler, you know? And you get a lot of these amazing shots of him at his gun towards the end when they're crawling up the tank and, you know, he has to whip out the knife and da-da-da and the whole nine yards. Yeah, I'm like, Norman is dead meat, but sure enough, like, there's this little latch underneath the tank where you can sort of sneak out the bottom. And they actually set that up in the deleted scenes. But I'm glad they didn't include it in the actual... I'm actually glad they didn't include any of the deleted or extended sequences because I just think the movie flows perfectly. And he's, like, under the tank, which felt just so claustrophobic, and burying himself. The Nazi soldier just like looks under the tank and flashes the flashlight like directly at him and lets him live you know it's it's what <laughs> like <laughs> and there's there's no explanation for yeah. it you don't know why it happens it's just a nice thing that the guy did i don't know I, there's no other way to say it it's bringing back the whole imagery of the movie like god sort of smiled down on him that is like the only thing i mean what could be going through that nazi's mind this kid just fought a battle that, you know, will live on in my mind forever and ever, right? Like, it seemed like this epic, epic last stand that they did. So the only thing I could come up with is the Nazi saw that one of them was a survivor, and he was a very young kid, like most of the people the Nazis forced to fight, or like children too. Maybe he was just like, I'll let this one go. There's just been so much killing today. Maybe he's earned the Nazis' respect because he was such a fierce warrior. Like, I've been racking my brain to sort of come up with a logical explanation, and maybe there just isn't one. Maybe it's just a moment in time. It's just something that happened, and no one knows why they did what they did. And and I buy that because it's war, and you have to expect the unexpected, and that was certainly very unexpected. 
I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it could have happened, but the fact that there's no definitive reason just sort of, it, it just works better. Like, this is almost the kind of thing that I, I ex- or sort of half expected you to say, like, oh, and then there was, like, a deleted extended scene where we had, like, the inner Nazi, you know, going to trial and saying, no, sir, I did not see any American. <laughs> just, like, you know, like, it, it, it feels like the thing that, like, other movies could have, like, clunked up with justification or reasons, and just, we don't need to know why, it just... It just happened, you know. Yeah. So it just he got away, and it's you know he was the, he was the last one there and the only one out, and 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 I don't think it necessarily makes the movie any more of a happier ending that he survives. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's almost more depressing. Yeah, it, now he has that feeling they had, where it's like he's on borrowed time. Is how I felt. Like he almost is gonna. Maybe he doesn't feel like he deserved to survive that battle, but he did, and the way they just kind of rescue him at the end, you know, when the American forces show up and they just kind of shuffle him off into a van and the last shot is him, like, in the backseat of a truck being driven away or this right before that final shot of the tank from above. And it's just like, okay, like, shh, no one knows what happened. Just, we have a survivor, ship him off, get him out of here. That's the end of that. He's never going to see those bodies again. He's never going to see any of that. That's That moment is over. It's crazy. And that's the end of the movie. I mean, with the, the last, I mean, I I've sort of been trying not to say it all movie just because I mean it as a joke and not as an actual thing, but, like, another character in the movie is the tank, and the last thing we see is just the tank. You know, we're sort of taking an aerial shot away. We just see the tank, like you said, crucified on these streets, and that's it. Like, that's the movie. We're o- we're 0 for 1 in getting Shia to, you know, escape these movies alive, <laughs> so we'll, we'll have to see if he dies again. I know that he's... He's in a couple movies I've seen where he might die. I don't remember. Mm. Um, But we will see uh, if Shia... Because, I mean, this is a very bold and sudden and sort of in a weird, twisted way, sort of like a a cool death, almost. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just... It's going to be hard to top this if he does die again. Yeah, everything about this performance is going to be tough to top. (laughs) We might get close, and I might find things that I like as much, but technically and, you know all that stuff like I just think that this is probably his best performance but that's fine because I, it gives us a bar to measure up to you know like that's maybe one of the better things about going backwards is well the next movie that we have up is the five and a half hour director's cut of Ninja Maniacs <laughs> I mean so we started with his best movie and now we're, we're just diving right into by far his longest movie and sort of going to be the, possibly the most awkward one to talk about I saw both Nymphomaniac individually. I don't remember much about them, so I'm going to... I look forward to seeing the director's cut as one massive just five and a half hour chunk of something. <laughs> so we'll find out. So we're really going from the fire into the... Fr- like, you know, from the front. I, I don't... I, no metaphors do this justice. Like, we're just... It's, uh, we're, it's happening. We're, we're jumping in with both feet, I guess, and yeah. just Shia, all his movies, it's happening. Any last thoughts about the movie that we didn't cover? No, I, I believe it covered everything. Uh, you know, talked about some of the extended footage that I wanted to get in. Yeah, I'm good. So for all things Shia LaBeouf, all things, all his movies, to make sure you don't miss a single episode, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can see everything that we're doing for this series, the other ones that we've done. We have Cage Club, Keanu Club, Zack Attack, Monkey Club, Now and Again. I mean, we're two months ahead, so maybe other things have happened in the meantime that you know more about than I do, so we will see. We thank you for joining us. We're going to do, I think the plan right now as we're recording this is to do one a day until this run is done, so a little under a month of one a day, so if you get through this, if you want to listen to all of them, Thank you. I mean, we're we're just sort of doing this just because we want to talk about movies and we want to see the Shia stuff, but if you're out there listening, like, cool, thanks. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on All His Movies. I-